Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. W-A-B-E in Atlanta. I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Thanks for listening as together we continue to navigate the reality of ongoing confinement. The documentary Toni Morrison, The Pieces I Am, won the NAACP Image Award for 2020. We'll listen back to my interview with the filmmaker Timothy Greenfield Sanders, recorded not long before Toni Morrison died last summer. If you've ever wondered how actors engage in onstage combat without getting hurt, we'll hear from a fight choreographer. And to avoid actors' emotional hurt, we'll learn about the role of an intimacy director. First, graphic content of another kind. Comic book and sci-fi conventions, such as the massive Comic-Con in San Diego, have been canceled due to COVID-19. Here in Atlanta, however, there's another way to gather with kindred spirits. Infinite Realities Comic Store in Tucker decided to create a virtual con. It's called the Stay-at-Home Con, and each day they'll host live conversations with various comic book creators. Comic book writer Mark Russell and Chris Brenneman, co-owner of Infinite Reality, spoke via Zoom with City Light's Kevin Rinker. For the comic book industry, one of the largest impacts COVID-19 has had was Diamond, just about the only comic book distributor in the United States, ceasing new comic book shipments, announcing that they were going to stop in, in March and then stopping in April. How has that decision affected Infinite Realities? It was very sudden. There wasn't much heads up about it. So that meant that we had very little time to prepare for, you know, a a loss of a a not insignificant amount of revenue stream. That hurt. However, uh, it forced us to be creative and it forced us to rely on not just being a showroom for Diamond, if that makes any sense, to focus on the other things that our store had to offer. Have you been able to sell comic books you already had in stock and graphic novels that you already had on the shelves, or or did you shut down altogether? No, uh, so we shut down for in-store business, and for a few weeks we even stopped curbside pickup because we do fall on the side of social distancing is going to be the key to getting through COVID-19. So for a few weeks we were doing mail order only, and we have a, an exceptionally engaged and supportive community, and we were able to make it for a few weeks with that. Last week, we reintroduced contactless curbside service, which people have been taking advantage of. Everybody is exceptionally understanding of that. And even though Georgia reopened for, for business as normal, we have decided that we're going to continue only offering contactless curbside pickup for the time being. 
And with Diamond uh, announcing that they're going to resume shipments on May 20th, does that change your plans? Or are you just going to continue with curbside pickup and, and people who have a monthly pull list will just let you know that they're coming and, and get their comic books curbside? Honestly, I would like to be able to prognosticate that far out and say what's going on, but so much is changing every single day. So much new information comes out. So we're planning for multiple eventualities. We're planning if the experts say it's okay to do limited in-store. We're planning if it's still contactless curbside. We just want everybody to be safe. And so we're going to follow the experts' leads on this. Are there any comics, any monthly comics that you're really looking forward to getting back to reading once uh, Diamond resumes shipments? Oh yeah, um, I, I love I, I love X Men. I like Mark Russell's output a lot, <laughs> so I'm looking forward to new comics from him. So honestly, what I'm really looking forward to is seeing our customers again. We didn't get into it uh, to retail for the sake of doing retail. We got into it for the community, and I just miss seeing everybody every week. Absolutely. Mark Russell, turning to you, what comic books were you writing before the pandemic took place? I was actively working on uh, the next season of Second Coming and my run on Red Sonia, and as well as some, some of the um, giants for DC, notably Batman and Swamp Thing giants for them. And what was the message from publishers when Diamond announced that they wouldn't be shipping monthly comics? What were you told? It was mixed, you know. Um, I did get a pencils down order on a couple of things, which I haven't even started work on, so it wasn't really real to me. But everything else that I was already sort of in the middle of, the publishers just kept kept working on it. So in terms of the actual workload, it didn't really have an impact on me beyond like the uncertainty of what am I going to do next? Because now that, you know, the, uh, the world is shutting down and the industry, you know, is dubious about whether or not the industry is ever going to come back to be the way it was. And by pencils down order, do you just mean, hey, put this project on hold? Yeah, don't work on this. Don't start work if you haven't already. So with the plan for comic books to resume shipments later in May, does that have you gotten any word on, on things picking back up? Have, have you gotten notification like, hey, you know, we think we're going to be able to publish this. Go ahead and start writing again. Not on the things that they gave me the pencils down order on. I think the problem is that even though the the mechanisms for distribution and production are, are back in place, there's still a lot of uncertainty because nobody knows whether buyers are going to come back because of all, you know, most people have lost their jobs. They, or, or so many people are not spending as much because of the uncertainty in the coming months. So I think there's a wait and see attitude about whether or not the, the demand for the comics is going to come back the way it was before before everything shut down. And I think a lot of the publishers are waiting to see if that returns before they actually start picking up these projects again. And are you hearing from other writers or artists um, on, on things they're doing to pick up other work while they're not able to write comics? Yeah, one of the problems of this is that, you know, the other sort of major stream for a lot of comic book writers and artists' income was the con circuit, going to cons and actively selling stuff over your table. And, and that's not open to them either. So they've lost really two avenues of income because of the, the shutdown and the, the, the COVID-19. So a lot of people I've spoken to, writers and artists, they're trying to turn to teaching or they are working on like long shelved projects of their own, their own sort of graphic novels and things that were not necessarily, they didn't necessarily have a publisher for, but things they've always wanted to do. Right. So like Mark mentioned with a lot of Comic-Cons being postponed or canceled, Chris, you've created Stay at Home Con. Can you tell me about the idea behind that? Yeah, I mean, it really came about because we, we are a very community-oriented store. We, we like people, and we like putting really cool stuff from creators in, into the hands of people who, who may not have read that stuff before. So I also moderate panels at multiple conventions every summer, and I wasn't getting to do that this summer. So I just figured, hey, you know, I, I kept seeing people talk about teleworking using Zoom. And I said, well, you know, you could probably replicate that panel experience at least you can't replicate to mark's point artists and writers being able to physically sell things but you can replicate the fan interaction to a degree using a platform like zoom or google hangouts so i had that idea and i made a list of creators that i would like to talk to or that my partners would like to talk to and sent out emails uh, or harassed people on twitter like i did with mark 
it took a life of its own after that. What started out as me reaching out to creators, we, we've had creators now have found out about it via social media, asking to be a part of it. And it really comes from a place of we love comics and we really love the people who make comics. And we're not getting to have that experience this summer of interacting with these people whose work has such an important impact on us. So why not use technology available to replicate that? And so what kind of panels are you having? Who's participating? Any any highlights or standouts that you want to mention? Mark was fun because he uh, his writing really speaks to me. He, he does some really cool stuff, especially like religious themes. I'm a Catholic school uh, product, so a lot of his work is really cool to me. I'm speaking with X-Men architect Chris Claremont on Saturday. That's really super exciting. We got comic book legend Walt Simonson confirmed with us yesterday. Shelly Bond, the lineup, it's straight up, hey, who who do we think is really awesome and who do we just want to have a conversation is? It's a who's who of, of our taste. Mark, what was it like doing, was this the, the first uh, kind of virtual con you'd done and what, what was the experience like? Yeah, it was. And, uh, and I think maybe this will be the silver lining for, you know, the, the, the rupturous change that the industry has had is that we're finding new and innovative ways to interact with fans and, and retailers. And whatnot. So I, I hope it's something that even when we stop social distancing as aggressively as we are now, that, that we can keep these virtual cons because I, I really enjoyed it. I didn't have to, you know, go to the airport. So that's always a plus. <laughs> no doubt. And Chris, what are you hearing from attendees who've been able to see the discussions online? We are hearing nothing but positive things. I mean, uh, when, when I set this up, your hope is I'll get to talk to some cool people and if some folks watch it and get some enjoyment out of it in the middle of all of this craziness and get a break from the weirdness, great. But I didn't expect the level of engagement that, that we've got. I didn't expect people to send the store personal messages thanking us for this. The response has been humbling. Like I said, we wanted to engage and it has taken on an existence of its own. And the creators have been so generous with their time. And they've been generous with their patience because we've been figuring Zoom out as we go along. We'd never used it before. So it's a perfect convergence of an amazing community and really selfless creators coming together. Any thoughts or, or insight on how COVID-19 might impact the future of comic book stores and conventions under the assumption that, that people will come back and, and keep buying books and attending cons if allowed? Do you think y'all will make it through this? Yeah, I'm optimistic, which is perhaps means I'm an idiot, but I, I am optimistic that things will come back to some semblance of normal. And what I'm hoping for is not that they will go back to normal but more that they will go forward to normal, that we'll create a new sort of normal where there's not like a monopoly on distribution of comics. We'll have a better distribution model, which serves both the publishers and the creators and the, uh, and the retailers better than the old model. And also that the cons will, will take this sort of thing into consideration in the way they set up their logistics or that maybe we'll have more smaller cons as opposed to like a, you know, a few sort of, major cons and and I, you know people will change the way we do the cons there'll be more emphasis on like washing your hands or you know everyone will have purell and and that the cons the way they're conducted will be safer even in non-pandemic times and, and from a retail perspective comics are resilient there there have been threats to the comic industry before there will be threats to the comic industry again but the beauty of comics is it's ultimately communal Everybody thought that digital distribution would be a huge blow to physical comics, but that really hasn't been the case. And I think it's because people like to come together in a place to talk with other people about these stories that have such an impact on their lives. And I think that the con experience will go forward as well, because while the, the, these writers and artists are superstars to fans like myself, Comics is still a niche enough where I can have a face-to-face -face human conversation with my favorite artists, my favorite writers, my favorite editors. So that need is not going to go away. That need for community will not go away. So I'm like Mark. I'm an optimist. I think we will work back to normal through this. Chris Brenneman, 
co-owner of Infinite Realities, comics, games, and more, along with comic book writer Mark Russell speaking with City Lights' Kevin Rinker. More information about the virtual stay-at-home con is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. The author Toni Morrison transformed American literature in the late 20th century. Whether the protagonist was a black girl longing for blue eyes or an enslaved mother who kills her child to save her from bondage, Morrison wrote exquisite prose about black identity in America. The Nobel laureate died in August of 2019 at the age of 88, Just a few months earlier in 2019, I spoke with the filmmaker Timothy Greenfield Sanders about his documentary, Toni Morrison, The Pieces I Am. I first met uh, Toni in 1981, uh, 38 years ago. She walked into my East Village studio. I was a young photographer and I was doing her for the cover of the Soho News, and she was smoking a pipe. And we became friends at that moment, really. Uh, I remember someone said to me the other day, what, did, what do you remember from that? And I said, well, so long ago, but I remember how confident she was hmm. that, that often as a photographer, you know, what you do is you, you read your subject the minute they walk in the room. You're kind of sensing, are they nervous? And there's an anxiety to being photographed. And Tony didn't have any of that. She was just ready to go and easy, and I remember that very well. And that confidence comes through in the film, but not as arrogance or self-importance. She just rather matter-of-factly mentions at one point in the movie, well, I write well. Or I'm a good (laughs) writer. And I thought, yeah, I would say so. And that must be why on camera she seems so at ease and and as though she's completely enjoying being your subject because you go back nearly 40 years. I guess you achieve that trust. That's exactly right. And Tony enjoyed the interviews. I think, you know, I think for her, the issue when I first asked her to do this film, and she's very private, she doesn't do biographies, doesn't, hasn't written an autobiography, but she somehow allowed me to do this because I think she felt I could, I could. And we shot those at her house, and we set it up as a studio there, the studio look of my portraiture, but she enjoyed it so much, and it was a chance for her to really tell her story. I loved her remarks about the Nobel Prize ceremony and that the Swedes really know how to throw a party. <laughs> You're not expecting it in the film because she's, she's very serious, and she says, I like the Nobel. And you're thinking, <laughs> what does that mean? And it's just because they know how to throw a party. <laughs> I love it. Early in the film, she explains why reading and writing were acts of defiance, or reading and writing was an act of defiance in her family, that her grandparents weren't allowed to read. It was against the law. What effect did knowing that have upon her? We opened the film with that because Tony reminds us how much it means to be able to read and to be able to learn and to be educated and how much that was kept from African Americans in those days, particularly her, even, even as far back as her great-grandfather. 
it's it's a stunning thing to realize, really. You don't imagine that, but mm. it was a way to control people. And even in her house, the importance of books from her parents was on display early on to her. I think she she understood how much it meant that she was reading a lot, and they they encouraged her. I remember not in the film, but her fa- she was telling me about her father really encouraged her and made her feel like she was special. Hmm. And that was, a, you know, that's what you want from a parent. Indeed. Some reviewers said Toni Morrison was limiting herself in only writing about black people. Would you talk about her response to that criticism? She mentions James Baldwin talking about the little white man sitting on his shoulder. I thought that was a great part of the film. She does. Tony, you know, one of her big themes and something that we confront very early in the film is the, the, the white male gaze, which is that everything is white-centric. Everything comes from a point of view of whiteness. And she talks about the little white man that's sitting on your shoulder looking at everything you do, judging you, you know, critiquing you, controlling you. And she says, once you knock him off, you're free. And And that was... What she did, and so she didn't write from a point of view of, of for whites. She wrote, you know, from a very, very specific point of view of African Americans at a time when nobody was really doing that. Hmm. I often go back to this quote from Lorraine Hansberry because I love it so much. She once said, in response to something similar, she said, "The universal is in the specific." Mm, I would beautiful. have thought, yeah, and I would have thought, you know, a decade and a half later that Toni Morrison wouldn't have received that kind of criticism, but but she did. I think that there's always, you know, disapproval of black women, particularly in America. In the film we show when she wins the Nobel— and this is such an exciting, incredible moment for everyone. And the next day, the Washington Post has this nasty article with these awful, awful comments about her work and trying to marginalize her and make her you know, not important. It's politically correct, things like that. One of them even says, I hope she learns to write better books. Oh, as if this wasn't <laughs> a profound impact on American literature and, you know, a badge of honor for us. Well, yes, so much for them. Oprah Winfrey says in the film that with her words on the page, Toni Morrison teaches readers to take pain and learn to love through it. She's such an uplifting figure and a voice of truth in our society. Timothy, in what ways did her body of work influence how you made this documentary? I'm a reader of Tony, but more more importantly, I I think I wanted the world to see all the sides of Tony Morrison. I wasn't going to make a film critiquing each book and going through each book. I think that would be, wouldn't be what I, it's really not what I wanted to do. I wanted to do is show how she was an editor at Random House and brought to the table many, many, many important authors who were marginalized, people like Tony Cade Bambara, and she put a book out with Angela Davis and Muhammad Ali. I mean, she did amazing things in a very white building. The Random House building in those days was quite white male. And, you know, Tony was a single mother at the same time, raising two boys, and she was teaching and, and all of this while she was writing her books. So it's just an astounding level of competence and talent on, on every level that, that she, she demonstrated. You also feature her editor, Robert Gottlieb, who is revered in publishing, who is revered among literati. What does he reveal about Tony as an editor? She talks about when she started out at uh, Random House and they discovered that she had written a book, <laughs> The Bluest Eye, mm-hmm. published by a different publisher. They decided they needed to bring her into the company and they put her 
at Knopf because that was the sort of high-end literary side, and she was working what they called Little Random uh, as an editor. And they assigned Robert Gottlieb to her. They became very close friends. He edited all of her books but one. And, you know, he's one of the greatest editors of all time. He works with Robert Caro, did all the, the Path to Power books and the Lyndon Johnson and, you know, remarkable, remarkable work. Uh, so we wanted Gottlieb to, to talk to us. And unfortunately, things get left on the cutting room floor. We have a wonderful sequence for the DVD about commas. <laughs> how they fought over commas, <laughs> Tony and Robert Gottlieb. So uh, she'd give him one, and he'd, you know, she'd say, I don't want this one, but I'll give you one over here. Oh, how funny. Well, beautiful artwork appears in the film, works by Jacob Lawrence and Romir Bearden, to name two. I know that you are an accomplished visual artist and fine art photographer yourself. Would you tell us about the imagery you selected to complement the dialogue in the film? You know, as as a white man making a film about a black woman, I, I tried to bring in as much uh, from the African-American community as possible. And one of the ways, aside from the opening by Micheline Thomas, and the, the incredible music, you know, from Catherine Bostick was to bring in fine art artists, uh, painters, to bring their work into it. You know, uh, Elizabeth Catlett and Charles White and uh, Lorna Simpson, Faith Ringgold, Carrie James Marshall. All of these people, some are friends of mine because I was a photographer of the art world for many years. And we, what we did here, we, I've never seen in a documentary, we really are cutting to paintings not so much to illustrate, but to give you a feeling of what's going on and what's being said. And it was very powerful. We we started to do it and, and thought it would work and then got very into it. <laughs> what painting could we put here? What painting there? But it's it's an unusual part of the film. Jacob Lawrence, for example, we used his great migration paintings, which, which are masterpieces, to illustrate kind of Tony's family leaving Alabama and moving to Ohio. It's very effective, really breathtaking. Would you share the story about Marlon Brando? <laughs> Tony uh, became friends with Marlon Brando because he would call her up and read back passages of her books to her and talk about what he thinks it means. <laughs> <laughs> at, at three in the morning. At, at, at three in the morning, exactly. At three in the morning. And she said, I couldn't really hang up on him, but it was, you know, he would critique it. And uh, <laughs> it's just too funny. Chutzpah, I would say. It's absolute chutzpah, yes. I was hoping finally that you would talk about the people whom you chose to interview for the documentary, kind of like a who's who of the second half of the 20th century on into the 21st. Why did you choose the folks you did? Well, I worked with Tony. Uh, you know, she never watched the film while we were making it. She didn't see it till it was over. And she did her interviews. And that was really the extent of her uh, participation other than we I brought a very long list to her and she pulled out her red editor's pencil <laughs> and <laughs> crossed off most of it which was good because it w enabled us to kind of settle on 12 people I don't like to invite someone to sit for a film and then not use the footage mm -hmm. you know we got Hilton Ailes and Russell Banks and Angela Davis and uh, Paula Giddings and uh, Farrah Griffin, who was a Toni Morrison scholar, and Fran Lebowitz, her very close friend for years, Sonia Sanchez, an amazing woman uh, who was the first to really teach Toni in the schools, and, of course, Oprah. Uh, so, uh, and a couple others, Richard Daniel Poor, I'm trying to remember, Bob Gottlieb, right? Walter Mosley, wonderful Walter yes. Mosley, Russell Banks, David Carrasco. Uh, that was the group we assembled. And, you know, I shot Tony direct to camera. So she's looking at you, talking to you, and the others are shot off camera so <laughs> that they're not as important in the frame. And I, I had never seen that in a film, but I thought, you know, I hope it could work because if it doesn't work, you're stuck with it. But it, wonder, it was wonderful because Tony is a great storyteller. And 
it also makes you feel like she's connecting to you. Timothy Greenfield Sanders spoke with me last June about his documentary, Toni Morrison, The Pieces I Am. It won the NAACP Image Award in 2020, and you can see it on Hulu now. I highly recommend watching it. Meryl Streep once said, The best thing about acting is when you're playing a scene and you actually become your character and lose yourself in that moment. Those are truly thrilling moments. Some of those thrilling moments can be physically challenging as well. In recent years, scenes where there is combat or intimacy may involve a specialized choreographer. I spoke with fight and intimacy choreographer Kristen Storla and intimacy director choreographer Ash Anderson. They've worked on several films and theater productions in the Atlanta area. I first asked Kristen how she became interested in fight choreography. I think going back to younger days for Kristen, you know, being the youngest child of of three, I never got the last word when it came to uh, my physical interactions with my siblings. (laughs) So when I found this training, I was maybe 12 or 13 when I took my first class in stage combat. And it really opened my eyes to what my body was capable of. And that set my love for the work from then on. Now, as I continue to explore the work, I I think it's a perfect hybrid of storytelling and technique. What talent and skills are required to be a fight choreographer? To be a fight choreographer, it really, in my point of view, it requires a big picture understanding of of what's going on. Yes, you need the, the technique and the fight theory, and I think that comes along with training. That's something I, I will always come back to is, is work. I am always a student of this craft, but in taking from just being an actor combatant to moving to becoming a choreographer, you need that big picture quality of, of working with a director, understanding their vision, understanding what an actor brings to the table in terms of their physical capabilities and really honing in and making sure that we're highlighting their skill set, what they're capable of, and highlighting the story at large. So what did you study? What kind of training and combat work have you learned in order to do this job? So a lot of my training has come from the Society of American Fight Directors, or the SAFD as it's called as well. And they specialize in the training of eight different weapon styles as they've codified through the years. Uh, And those would be unarmed, broadsword, knife, rapier and dagger, single sword, small sword, quarter staff, and uh, sword and shield. So those are the eight weapon styles you'll come across most commonly in uh, fight choreography for this stage. Uh, And so I've done a lot of training in those, and then I've found other avenues in which to amplify and support those trainings. So I've dabbled in some whip work and the flow arts, a little bit of circus arts. I've taken my work as a puppeteer into what I do as a fight choreographer as well. I think it's such a great platform that cross applies across all of the arts. I've seen your work at the Shakespeare Tavern. Did they have fight choreographers centuries ago, or did the actors just try not to hurt each other? (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a little column A, maybe a little more column B. (laughs) When did it become recognized as part of the profession? So if my understanding is correct, I know the Society of American Fight Directors organized in the in the seventies or sixties, don't put me to that. Um, but I know uh, the fight community or the fight family, as we lovingly call it, is a really small circle, and we've been working off of each other for decades and decades. So, as far as my understanding goes, the old timers would get together and talk about what they were doing or were 
what worked well for them. And in that process, they discovered that, hey, there's a need for this work. There's a need to codify it and get it out to the masses and keep people safe. So that's how this society came about. So you said 60s or 70s, at least for stage fight choreography. That's much more recent than I would have thought. And what came to mind as you were speaking was images of Douglas Fairbanks and Errol Flynn in those swashbuckling early films, you know, those black and white adventure stories in, I guess, 1920s and 30s. So those guys just faked it or took fencing and tried to do their best? From my understanding of, of our history, where how we got to here, in those days, there were fight professionals that were trained in fencing. That's uh, the basis for a lot of this work is, is European fencing styles. And then they would get adapted for film to say, oh, okay, we need this angle or we need to highlight this action for this actor. Um, but a lot of the work comes out of this, the the true martial historical European fencing styles. Hmm. And then I would think also for stage in particular, wrestling might come in, judo. Where you do these, I mean, just plain old acrobatics and dance. Oh yes, all of it. All of it applies. Whatever an actor or fight choreographer has experienced before, there's a way to utilize that in choreography. It's a joy in that how open of a, of a practicum it can be. Mm -hmm. um, and myself, I'm not an acrobat by any means, but if I am working with someone that has a strong skill set there, great, let's work together to see how we can highlight that training of yours through the vocabulary and the, the lens of stage that I bring to the equation as well. Kristen, in addition to being a fight choreographer, you are also certified as an intimacy director. This would be a good time to bring Ash Anderson into our conversation. Ash, welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you for having me. How did the profession of intimacy director come about? I know that there have been different groups and solo humans throughout the world who have tapped into this type of intimacy direction work. But the first that I personally know of it being codified in a specific way was by Intimacy Directors International. And that was founded in 2016 um, by one of my mentors, Tony Asina. That has just recently been dissolved into a more specific certification and training group called Intimacy Directors and Coordinators. So 2016, we're talking less than five years old. Yes. And, and yet how sorely this was needed for so long. I read that Intimacy Directors International established five pillars to ensure proper standard care. Would you describe those? Yes, of course. There are five pillars and they can go for intimacy direction work, but they can also go for any work that any creative decides to tackle. The first is context. We talk about what is going on within a scene or a show. What are the actor's perspectives of what their character is going through? What is the perspective of the director? What are they wanting to see? From that, we utilize that and we communicate back and forth to agree on a specific story that jives with all of us. Mm -hmm. And the next one is consent. We make sure that whatever has been discussed is very specifically communicated and consented upon that it is an enthusiastic yes, because if it's not enthusiastic yes, it's a no. Past that, that's when we get into the choreography of it. And then from the choreography, we have a fifth pillar called closure. So um, I myself as an actor as well know that throughout all of my training, we are told how many different ways and methods to put on the mask uh, to be an actor. but 
there is no training that I have personally received of taking off the mask. Hmm. That is where the fifth pillar comes in. Um, when we're doing such intimate and vulnerable work, it is very important to be able to distinguish those two things as one being a job and then past that the mask is off and you are your own human again. Of course, a theater goer or film viewer isn't necessarily thinking of the actor as a human being separate from their character. It just appears that those people on stage or on screen are doing what comes naturally, but they are not. (laughs) How do you coach and help actors choreograph intimacy? It's much like so you were talking about the, you know, Errol Flynn and all of these old hats and they knew what their partner was going to be doing, right? Like it wasn't just off of the cuff and winging it. They consented, okay, you're going to try to attack me at my shoulder and I am going to block. It's the same thing with intimacy. It's making sure that whatever choreography that we laid out is agreed upon. So we build, let's say, um, I would be interested to see if you took your hand and brushed it up against their shoulder. I can give permission. I have to discuss with the two actors because they are the only ones that can give each other consent. And from there, we build. So it's just the same as any dance choreography. And I'd like to jump in here. One of the pillars that I think we forgot to mention there is also communication. And that's really integral in working with our actors in making sure that they have a voice in the work as well. I know for myself personally in training and intimacy work that this has allowed me to find my voice as an actor as well, to say what I am comfortable with and be very confident in that and to say what I'm not comfortable with and not feel any shame in that decision to say no, because at the end of the day, yes or no is an arbitrary decision. We're all working on the same end product and we want it to be as great as it can be. So communication is very important in allowing actors to have their own onus in the work and feel confident in the choices they make and what they're able to tell physically. Reading about the five pillars that Intimacy Directors International established When I first saw Pillar 1 being context, an example came to mind that I would not have been aware of had she not written an editorial in the New York Times. And this was from the actor Selma Hayek when the terrible behavior of Harvey Weinstein came out. And... I don't know if you saw the movie Frida about Frida Kahlo, but I loved it, and she was marvelous in it. There was a scene with her, fully nude, frontally shot, frontal nudity, and in this editorial, she wrote about how she opposed that how she told him it had no reason to be in the film, and how he threatened her with just shutting down the production that she had worked for seven years to help come about. And then she wrote about vomiting before beginning the shoot and having taken tranquilizers that she never considered taking before acting and wondering if she was going to be able to remember her lines. She's famous, and she was able to get this attention. I imagine there are far too many stories that are similar, and it's shocking to think that it's only been a few years since something such as intimacy direction has been around. Do you face resistance from producers or even directors? Um, First, I wish to say that yes, and validation and empathy goes out to the actress 
and also validate that, yes, this has happened to so many people, regardless of gender or orientation, regardless of if it's in film and theater. And I'm very thankful for the Me Too movement, for the Time's Up movement that I feel has brought this wave of consciousness on which uh, intimacy direction is able to surf upon. You know, we call ourselves intimacy directors, but quite truly my first job when I step into a room is to be an advocate. I always say that I'm super excited, of course, that I get to create a piece of nonverbal storytelling that's put on stage, but my first job is to be an advocate, is to be an advocate for the actors as well as the theater house that I enter into and to be able to talk about equity laws or the theater laws of sexual harassment and harassment and to be able to figure out the state's laws of what they're asking so that it can all come together. In my personal experience in working with different directors and artistic directors, sometimes there is a little bit of friction. But the reason for that friction, I find, is that they do not know specifically what an intimacy director does. There's this unknown there. Um, I know that some people have thought that it means that we can't do anything risque anymore, that I am there to be a police on what their artistic vision is rather than an assistant to help bring their vision to life with consent from everyone within the room and that is specific and agreed upon. Once that is realized within a room, I have had no problem from any producer or director in my personal experience, of which I'm very thankful. Good. Ash, last year you worked with actors in Synchronicity Theater's Hero's Wife. We talked with the playwright Aline Lathrop and director Rachel May about this complicated, sad story that deals with a retired Navy SEAL returning home to his young wife, and the two are forced to reckon with his increasingly violent struggle with post-traumatic stress. How did you approach working with these actors in such intense scenes? What I do first is I make sure, I ask what the playwright specifically wanted, what was important to the intimacy in each of the scenes, uh, as well as speaking to the director on what their expectations, what uh, they want the audience to feel when they're watching these pieces, if there's anything specific that they want to see. From then, I go and I ask the actors, where are you at within, for your characters within this process? How do you think this story is going to go? And from there, after we set our boundaries of what we do consent to, what is off limits, then we start to collaboratively build a piece of nonverbal storytelling. After we have all agreed upon what is important within the story, what is exactly that we want to see, and what is consented storytelling-wise. With what we've learned recently about widespread sexual harassment and abuse, it seems that your role is ever so important. Are intimacy directors getting a lot more work? I find that the acknowledgement of the work is growing and what a great thing that is. But it is still a, a process that Ash and myself are finding uh, in the Atlanta market and I think our colleagues are finding nationally, internationally of bringing that awareness to companies. Because it can be one of those things that people don't know they need it until they know they need it. And, and something you spoke to in sharing Selma's story is that any time I bring up that I do intimacy work, 
any actor or creative I come across wants to sit down and share their experience of why that work is important. I have a few of those stories myself. I think a lot of creative people in the industry do. Again, as Ash was saying, regardless of gender or, or anything like that. So the importance is growing. And I think one thing that really will push the work into the forefront is an actor's voice, is an actor coming forward and saying, hey, I saw in the script that my character needs to portray simulated sexual activity. Do you have an intimacy choreographer for me? And then that brings that to the producers or the director's forefront, and then they're able to, to explore and find people that can do intimacy choreography and direction. Um, so I think it's, it's really in the power of the actor to help bring this work forward. It's also important for whatever hiring house that is looking for an intimacy director to check their credentials. Because what's very, very important about this work is that it's not something that you can just pick up and go with. From my point of view, if you have a little bit of knowledge, you actually have more of a wider breadth to end up hurting someone than if you knew nothing. Intimacy director Ash Anderson, along with fight choreographer and intimacy director Kristen Storla. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. with the singer-songwriter Billy Bragg. He's won critical acclaim for his written polemics, pamphlets in the style of Tom Paine and George Orwell. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter, at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Subscribe to our new podcast on just about any app. And you can also like us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Stay safe, wishing you well, and thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.